near-death experience podcast, an ongoing exploration of spiritually transformative experiences, including NDEs and other phenomena, in order to elucidate the ineffable and better understand our spirituality. All episodes are available at ndepodcast.org. The views expressed and opinions given by the individual hosts and guests are not necessarily those of NDE Podcast, the NDERF, any sponsors, or for that matter, anyone else. In the end, the only opinion that really matters is yours. Welcome to Near-Death Experience Podcast, the official source of audio accounts for the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. I'm Chaz Hathaway, author of Life in the Spirit World, What Near-Death Experiences May Teach About Life on the Other Side. Today we're going to share the experience of Karen Thomas, and it is kind of a long one, so I'm going to dive into it quick here. If you'd like to hear more of Karen's experience and her words about her experience, you can get on YouTube and just look up Karen Thomas' near-death experience, and you'll see videos, interviews, and so forth, where she is talking about her near-death experience. Okay, this is from Enderf.org. Karen says, and this is July 1982. The morning of my surgery, I remember the nurse who was prepping me for surgery. She commented that I was the most relaxed person she has seen getting ready to go into surgery. My husband and two young children, ages nine and six, were in my hospital room with me when they brought the stretcher to take me to surgery. They walked with me for a while, and then they were given directions to the waiting room to stay while I was in surgery. They kissed me, and I left. Once in their operating room, I remember moving over to over onto the operating room table and having the IV in my arm through which they then administered my anesthesia. The next thing I was aware of, I found myself very near the ceiling in the corner of the room. I was so high that I was within inches of the ceiling tiles. I became aware of the doctor swearing angrily and ordering nurses to get more bags of blood. I looked back toward the sound and saw my body being flipped from face down to face up on the table. There was quite a commotion of people rushing back in, and I remember how pale my face looked. I knew it was my body, and I was looking at it but felt no alarm or concern. I remember moving effortlessly through the wall of the room and down the hallway out through the double doors of the operating suite. I couldn't feel any resistance or touch, a sense of touch when passing through the wall or doors at all. As I drifted down the hallway, I noticed the elevator door opening, and a man that I didn't know came rushing past the open elevator door. There was something about how he was rushing, and his obviously high anxiety drew my attention, so I watched him, 
noticing that he was wearing a brownish jacket of some kind and that he seemed to be carrying a bag of some sort. He was hurrying toward the doors to the operating suite and slowed near a man by the entry to the operating suite. I don't recall the words of each of them, but I knew the man who had come past the elevator was a surgeon, and he was irritated at having to take time to slow down while the other man didn't think that this man in street clothes had any right to enter the operating room suite. I didn't hear the sound of their voices, but I was telepathically aware of each man's thoughts, unlike in the operating room where I heard the sounds of the doctor swearing. Once the surgeon passed into the operating suite, I no longer watched him. At this point, I began to rise through the ceilings of each floor in the hospital, as though I were being pulled by some force outside my own volition. I continued rising until I passed through the roof itself and found myself in the sky above the hospital. Once outside the hospital, I began to move much more quickly past the mountain range near the hospital and over the city. I was at the height of an airplane. It was at that point that I realized that if I was moving so quickly, I should feel wind rushing past me and should notice a difference in the temperature of the air, but I felt none of this. I remember rushing into a dark, cave-like area where I continued at high speed for some time before I became aware of a small, bright light in the distance in the direction that I was headed. Now I'm going to pause just momentarily to apologize for um, my kids are watching Fantasia in the other room, and so this musical background was not my attempt to uh, make some background music, but uh, it just, <laughs> it is what it is. So anyway, continuing. I quickly emerged into this intense light and looked down at a rocky ground below me where my feet should be and a rugged rocky incline to my left. As I looked up the incline, I saw the back of a man proceeding up the incline and telepathically knew that I was to follow him. I examined his back and noticed long dark hair tied behind with a leather tie, a short toga-like garment in rough off-white material, and sandals on his feet with leather ties wrapping up around his calves. I remember thinking, that's not Jesus. We reached the ledge which opened onto a gorgeous pastoral scene of vivid green grass studded with vibrantly colored flowers unlike any I have ever seen. There were enormous shade trees scattered around and beyond the field was a small river about 30 feet across. We came to the bank of the river and on the opposite bank I saw all my loved ones who had passed away. They were gathered in a large group. I saw my father and my brothers first. They were as thrilled to see me as I was to see them. Then I noticed 
various aunts, uncles, and cousins in the group. Finally, I realized that a few people that I didn't immediately recognize were my grandparents, who had all died before I was born, so I had never met them. Still, I knew who they were and could telepathically hear them saying how much they loved me. I don't remember what any of them were wearing or even what they looked like, but it was definitely their spirits, and there was no doubt in my mind who they all were. Before I could go to them and embrace them, my guide who had led me up the incline communicated to me telepathically that I had to go somewhere else first and that I must follow him. I followed him around a bend in the river until I could see in the distance a beautiful Greek-style Greek building that was vibrantly white with many steps leading up to it and huge columns in front. Lots of spiritual beings were dressed in vibrant white robes. They were milling around outside, going in and coming out. My guide took me inside where it opened into an enormous library full of tables and lined with books. Many spirits were studying different books, and my guide communicated that this hall held the book of life described in the Bible. We continued to a back room where some spiritual beings were sitting in chairs that circled around a screen in the floor that was like a glass-bottomed boat. They communicated that I was to watch my life, and then scenes like a 3D hologram appeared. I was able to re-experience myself in all of these events in my life, just as importantly, I was able to experience the impact of my actions and words on those other people with whom I had interacted. Not one of the spirits condemned me for those painful things I had done or not done, but I felt so very sorry and sad about them within my own heart. It all seemed to happen very quickly, but had a tremendous impact on me. I got the impression that these spirit beings had been with me and had helped me plan my life before I was born. They let me know that I would be able to return to my life if I chose to do so. Then they showed me through the same screen some future events in my life if I chose to return to it. Some events would, would definitely occur and some events were possible, but not definite. At this point, there is a gap in my memory of what took place next. The next thing I was aware of was being shown by my guide, the back of my doctor who had operated on me, standing in the waiting room in his green surgical garb, except his mask, and talking to my husband while the kids sat behind my husband on a couch. I wasn't able to hear any words said, only saw the scene. Then I was shown the image of all the prayers being said by my family and friends, each prayer appearing like a musical note and linking one to another and reaching up toward where I was. Lastly, I saw my daughter's prayer forming the last link to reach us. Suddenly, 
all the emotional ties, my husband and children rushed back into me. And I remember being a little girl myself when at the age of seven, I had prayed so urgently that my father wouldn't die. It seemed that my prayer wasn't answered and my father died. I knew I couldn't let my children grow up without their mother like I had grown up without my father. Hard as it was to leave this place of overwhelming, unconditional love and indescribable peace, I knew I had to return to my life. I was told that the future things in my life that I had been shown would be removed from my memory, as well as some other things I had been shown during my experience because of the choices I would make in my future life would be tainted and not truly legitimate choices if I were allowed to retain those memories. I would be granted enough memories to convince my logical mind of the reality of my experience, and I would be given an unmistakable sign that would be proof of where I, I truly had been. With that, the next awareness I had was waking up in the recovery room with my husband and children standing around me. Everything that I have written here was fully in my mind and heart immediately as I greeted my loved ones and my sign was there too. My sign was not an object of love, uh, or it was not an object, but it was in fact that I was completely enveloped in the peace that passeth all understanding and the amazing unconditional love of God, like an invisible bubble of protection. This amazing sensation, this sign, stayed with me at a tremendous intensity for about three weeks to come before gradually fading away. After it was gone, I knew more than I have ever known anything in my life, that my experience was completely real. The gift of God's love and peace that was with me for all those weeks was perfect proof and confirmation to my heart that I truly had been in the spiritual realm with God because it was exactly how I felt during the entire experience. I know the absolute truth of it to this day. I remained in the hospital for 12 days following my surgery, first in the intensive care and later in a regular hospital room. I was touched, or it was touch and go for a while, but I had complete confidence that I would recover because I knew that I had come back to my life for a reason and was here to stay. At first I didn't, didn't tell my family about my experience. I remember how surprised I was the first time that the surgeon who had saved my life came to my bedside for a visit. We had never met before that time, but he was the same man that I had seen rushing into my operating suite. He had been called to operate on me. Unlike the surgeon who had done my back surgery, who barely came in my room and even then wouldn't look me in the eye, this surgeon was kind and warm. He clearly cared about me and was pleased that I was recovering well. About a week after I was home, I had to go to the surgeon's office to have staples removed. My incision ran from my breastbone to my pubic bone and 
it had been stapled together. Not long after I was home, but before my return visit to this doctor, I had shared with my husband about my near-death experience and wondered aloud about the message I had been given about memories that would convince my logical mind of the truth of my experience. I remembered that my experience had included seeing the surgeon arriving that day of my surgery and that if he could confirm what I had seen when he arrived that day, then it would indeed convince my logical mind of the validity of the experience. Although I already knew it was real because of my sign, I also wanted my husband to have no doubt about it either. So after the surgeon had completed my examination and expressed how pleased he was with my healing so far, I said that I wanted to ask him something about the day of my surgery. I told them that during my surgery on my back after my artery had been cut and I was bleeding out that my spirit had left my body and traveled out of the operating room. I told him that I had seen him arriving that day, although I hadn't known who he was or why he was coming there at the time. I told him about how he was rushing toward the operating room and was wearing street clothes of a brown jacket of some kind and carrying a bag. I saw he was being annoyed to be slowed down near the doors by, to, to the operating room suite when he was clearly anxious to get into the operating room. Then I asked him if what I had seen was what had happened that day. His response was, how did you know that? I had been in my office when I was paged to come to the operating room, stat. I was needed to do an emergency exploratory surgery to locate and stop the bleeding from the vessel that had been cut during the back surgery. I can't remember for certain, but I think he may have asked me what else I had seen and experienced. I believe that I shared a bit about seeing my deceased loved ones and a little about my experience, but I don't remember any details, I told him. He never clearly said that he was actually wearing what I described. He only said, how did you know that? He was clearly blown away, though, and I think he would have said he wasn't wearing that or that he didn't remember it happening that way, if, in fact, it had happened that, the way I had described. I came away convinced that he had confirmed to me the validity of what I had seen, just the fact that he had come to the hospital in street clothes rather than having been a surgeon on call already at the hospital in scrubs was an unusual circumstance, I knew, and he did confirm that much. It was enough to convince my logical mind and my husband's as well. During the surgery, it had been discovered that I had endometriosis. So I also visited a gynecologist to follow up. During that visit, he asked me about my recent abdominal, abdominal, abdominal scar. When I explained what had happened, he exclaimed, That was you? I was in the adjacent operating room that day and heard all kinds of things going on in there. The air was blue for a while, I can tell you. 
I didn't share my NDE with him that day, but it confirmed to me that I had seen in the op- what I had seen in the operating room, and the swearing I had that I heard taking place there. That was unusual behavior for an operating room, for sure. After all these years, I have joined IONS and shared my story in public for the first time. I was inspired to find the surgeon who had done my emergency surgery, and he is still practicing in Alaska. I wrote to thank him and ask him if he remembered my case and my telling him about my near-death experience back then. He replied that he did remember me and remembered me sharing my NDE with him. Thinking deeply about what I had seen during my near-death experience and what might be confirmed by someone besides me, I spoke to my daughter, who was nine then and is 43 now, and asked what she remembered of the day. She said that they had waited long past when the doctor had told them that he would be out to talk to them and that she would be or that she was getting very worried she said that she heard some noise and saw a man come rushing past the waiting room acting like something bad had happened the man rushed over toward the elevators she said that it was the same man later introduced to me as the doctor who had saved my life she was more worried later when no one had come to talk to them yet. Then the surgeon who had done my back surgery finally came to the door of the waiting room and her father went over to speak to him. They were so serious that she was convinced that I must be dying. She prayed for me. She said, before I talked to my daughter, I asked my husband if he remembered seeing a man come past the door to the waiting room that day. He then remembered some rushing, someone rushing past, but he wasn't directly facing the doorway at the time. My husband had told me shortly after my surgery that the back doctor had come to talk to him in the waiting room that day, but I had never asked him what the doctor had been wearing. I knew from what my husband had told me at the time that the back doctor had asked my husband for permission to allow the additional surgery to save my life. Until recently, I had never discussed with my husband what I saw the back doctor wearing that day, and that I saw him standing in the doorway of the waiting room. I just remember, or I just recently asked him if he was all dressed in green surgical garb, including a hairnet type hat on his head, but no mask, and he confirmed that yes, he had stood in the doorway and was dressed just like that. The surgeon who saved my life recently emailed me, confirming that he had come to the hospital that day of my surgery from my office and was dressed in street clothes, though he couldn't remember all these years later what he had been wearing that day or whether he was carrying anything. He did say that he came out of the staircase as he rushed down the stairs and that he had to slow to press the button to open the automatic doors to the opening or the operating room suite. He didn't recall another man being present near the entry to the operating room suite. 
I have since concluded that they most likely did not speak to each other at all, and I was hearing both of their thoughts at once through telepathy and thought they were speaking to each other. I was hearing the surgeon's anxious thoughts to get into the operating room quickly, and the other man's thoughts worried that a person in street clothes shouldn't be allowed in the waiting room. Okay, that is the end of Karen's account. And what an interesting one. There's lots of veridical, uh, veridical, sorry, veridical um, evidences in there, which we'll talk more about. But uh, let me just jump to something in this experience. And we're, I'm going to jump around a bit because there's a lot of cool stuff in here. But there's a part right in the middle. She's right in the middle of her experience. And she is... Um, or sorry, she is back from her experience, but not in her body yet. She's she's returning, um, and she was given a choice whether or not to return, but the choice was given with some conditions and so forth. She says, I was told that the future things in my life that I had been shown would be removed from my memory as well as some other things I had been shown during my experience because of the choices I would make in the in my future would be tainted and not truly legitimate choices if I were allowed to retain those memories. Now that is interesting to me because that is one of the explanations or possible explanations about why either many people don't remember near-death experiences until much later, uh, probably why many people who have had nearly dying experiences um, have no recollection of any near-death experience, but do have after-effects, the kind of after-effects that come from a near-death experience. And um, it also demonstrates why we can't know what it was that we came to this earth to do. Would it really be true agency, a true choice and I'll even separate agency from choice. We always have agency in the sense that even if we know what we're supposed to do, we can choose not to do it. But is it a real choice? Is it our choice if it's something that we know we're supposed to do or know that we're setting out to do? Is that really a choice? I don't know. I don't know. And I'm left to think that maybe we don't have as much choice if we remember those kinds of things. Now, you like me, if, or maybe you like me, uh, if you were given the opportunity to see what you pre-ordained uh, to see, to experience on this planet, um, I, I don't know if I could pass up the opportunity to see what I was going to be experiencing. But anyway, very interesting that agency, that choice, and, and they have to be legitimate, authentic choices. There's something about that, that they would be tainted choices if she was allowed to retain those memories. Isn't that interesting? Tainted choices, not truly legitimate choices. Very interesting. Okay, I'm going to jump back some more. Um, okay, she has this really profound okay she has the experience of seeing 
um, the doctor, the surgeon, and so forth, um, bumping into him at the elevator. Well, not bumping into him at the elevator, but seeing him um, hurrying from the elevator, trying to get to surgery. And there's this other doctor, surgeon, or whatever, um, there thinking in his mind, why is this guy showing up in street clothes? Or possibly saying, who is this guy and what is he doing in uh, surgery area? I mean, this is probably an exceptionally sanitized uh, place where you probably aren't even supposed to come in with scrubs except in an extreme emergency. He's probably not aware of what is going on in her room in Karen's uh, surgery. But he's got this, this feeling of annoyance. And the doctor has a, a sense of annoyance having to let him by. It's kind of like, come on, come on, come on, come on. I gotta, I, I've got to get there. Hurry. I've got to get there. Come on. And she kind of, the, the tele, telepathy is so effortless and it is so um, natural to her that she assumes they had some kind of conversation or that they said something to each other. It's like not clear to her for a short time if they actually said anything to each other but she's she clearly reads and hears their thoughts as clearly as if they had spoken them out loud that's interesting okay so then she's she drifts out of the ceiling and it's like she can see the different levels of the hospital as she's passing through them this is so interesting. I mean, it's so, uh, you know, if you were floating through a building like this, floating upward and seeing as clearly as you see with your eyes, this is what you would see. You would see the panels between the floors and you would see, you know, all the different wiring and so forth that you pass through. She notices these things. And then pretty soon she is out and above the hospital and before she knows, she is rushing as if, you know, kind of drawn by a track, uh, uh, tractor beam. Um, it's pulling her along, so to speak. She is just rushing and very quickly rushing over the mountains, over the cities. She just whoosh. And then she finds herself going into this cave of sorts of darkness. She doesn't speak anything of any fear, any... Um, nervousness about this so it's not like she's being sucked into a freaky dark cave it's more like it's more like she's just kind of enveloping into this black tunnel cave type of thing that is just part of this experience and she's just kind of in, probably somewhat enthralled by the whole thing well she's in this dark place and all there is in there the only thing that she can see is a single bit of light which she, of course, rushes toward, absolutely rushes toward. And as she's rushing both uh, over the city and across the mountain, you know, above the mountains, the height of an airplane rushing along and then into this dark tunnel, um, she's kind of wondering, why, why am I not feeling any wind? Shouldn't I be feeling a breeze at least in uh, drifting or flying across um, you know, flying through the air like this, but she didn't. 
Now, I will say that some people experience a great sensation of wind. So it's not like, you know, this is a rule, but I'm not sure what that wind is. Is there a spirit world wind, a spiritual wind versus physical wind? And of course, she's not feeling the physical wind because she's a spirit. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's an explanation that might fit or not. I don't know, but uh, she's kind of surprised by this. And then next thing she knows, she is emerging into an intense light and she's looking down at a rocky ground below uh, you know some kind of cliffside rugged rocky incline as she says and uh, and there's a man there who uh, the description sounds like Jesus I mean the the description is very clearly sounding like Jesus, but her response when she sees him is, that's not Jesus. <laughs> so I don't know who this is. Probably some kind of spiritual guide. Maybe even some kind of, you know, like one of the disciples of Jesus or something. I don't know. I'm not sure she even thinks further on it. She apparently trusts him enough, though, and follows him uh, across this uh, ledge which opens up into this, as she describes it, a gorgeous pastoral scene of vivid green grass, which is studded with vibrantly colored flowers, unlike anything she had ever seen. What a beautiful description. And then she describes a river, a massive river, about third, well, I say massive, I'm used to creeks, you know, where you can almost as easily jump across as you could, you know, hop across a couple of rocks. But, uh, She's seeing this river 30 feet across, and uh, they come to the bank of the river, and she sees across the way, without even, I mean, she sees them, and maybe she recognizes some, but mostly she recognizes them by the feel of them. Now, this is a thing. This is a thing. The idea of somebody knowing who somebody is be they in a brilliant light that is too bright to see through, or be they, you know, not physically present, or at least not visible to them, but they know they're there, they, they know them really well. It's like, if you can have everybody's insights, history, thoughts, feelings, desires, all right there in front of you, and could feel all of that, then what need w would you have for seeing them physically. I don't know. Just thought that part was interesting. Um, next thing, this guide leads her into what I can only describe as the library of learning, this temple of knowledge that often comes up, uh, a place that is a big library with tons of knowledge in it. And uh, as this guide says, it is the place that contains the book of life. What that means exactly, I don't know, but it describes it as being the book of life described in the Bible. And uh, it's as is often described, um, she sees this as a large Greek, there's Greek columns, it's, it's almost like something that isn't from ancient Greece. And it kind of leaves me to wonder if ancient Greece you know, if, if there were um, architects 
who had near-death experiences and modeled what they saw in their own work when they came back. Or maybe the other way around. Maybe they were inspired by, uh, or, you know, maybe the building on the other side was inspired by the ancient Greek buildings because that's what the spirits enjoyed. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know how that's decided, but it's interesting that this place keeps showing up, this library of learning. And so they go past a bunch of tables of books and, and shelves and so forth, um, and into a back room where she walks into this, and there's a glass floor, one you can see through and so forth. And I'm not clear if seeing through it, like she's looking down into it for this life review that she's given. Um, I get the impression not, but I could be wrong about that. She sees uh, scenes like 3D holograms appearing, and she is able to re-experience the events of her life. And not just the experiences as they happened or as she experienced them, but also the impact, as she says, I was able to experience the impact of my actions and words on those other people with whom I had interacted. Not one of the spirits condemned me for those painful things I had done or not done, but I felt so very sorry and sorrow uh, about and sad about them within my own heart. This is a perfect example of how people tend to, on the other side, judge themselves harshly, but the others with them, their guides and so forth, don't judge them. They just don't. They just don't. In fact, they're there to comfort them. And, and they often will say things like, you, you were learning. This was a lesson that you needed to learn. This was something that, that uh, benefited you in this way or in that way. This is a quintessential uh, uh, life review and a quintessential, you know, discussion of, of judgment and so forth. How, how kind and compassionate it is and that, you know, we judge ourselves and so forth. It's just so interesting to me. And next thing, um, there she is shown future events for her life. So she sees this life review, and I don't know if it just continues on past the the time of her death or her operation, or if there's you know they're then taken somewhere else or something. But it sounds like. She's just seeing the, the, her life happening all along. She also recognizes that these people that are with her, these, I think she said seven spirits that are with her, these beings, were ones that were with her helping her to choose before she came to earth what she would experience. She says, they let me know that I would be able to return to my life if I chose to do so. They then showed me through the same screen some future events in my life if I chose to return. Some events would definitely occur, and some events were possible, but not definite. That's very interesting. And then that is the point at which there's a gap in her memory, and it, it goes fuzzy in her 
recollection, even though the experience itself is crystal clear. But what exactly was said, what exactly happened there, goes fuzzy enough that she can't remember it. She says, the next thing I was aware of was being shown by my guide, the back doctor who had operated on me, standing in, a, in the waiting room uh, in all his green surgical garb, except his mask, talking to my husband and, and their, their family and so forth is all there. And then she sees, as she is deciding whether to return or to stay, she sees her daughter praying. Uh, and when she sees her daughter praying, her mind rushes back to a memory of when she was a little girl. And at age seven, she lost her own father. And despite the fact that she had prayed and prayed that he would live he died. And now here she was at the situation to be able to choose whether to live or die. Probably wanting to stay, selfishly wanting to stay. I shouldn't say selfishly, but the uh, selfish part of her wanted to stay, and totally understandably so, I, I suspect. But remembering that made her realize she didn't want to put her daughter through that. Not only the fact that she prayed and her prayer was not answered in the ways that she wanted, but also that she didn't want her daughter to suffer from not having a mother after that, just like she had not had a father after he died. Not that he necessarily had the same choice, I don't know. No idea, no way of knowing. But uh, she said, hard as it was to leave this place of overwhelming, unconditional love and indescribable peace, I knew I had to return to my life. Now, I want to uh, pause on that for a moment. And I've said this before, and I apologize if it sounds redundant, but I think it's worth saying again and again. And that is, if you are here, in this life, you are here for a reason. If you are alive right now, it is as if you had a near-death experience and saw what was potential and everything and, and what you'd be leaving behind and so forth. And, and even with all the desire to stay, you decide to come back because you had a purpose to come back to. It might as well be that you had that experience for how important your purpose on this planet is. It's that important. You are here because your time is not yet completed. You not, it's not just a countdown. It is a purpose countdown. You have things to do. You have purposes to accomplish. You have missions to fulfill. And because you are not yet dead, you still have a mission to fulfill. We've got to see it that way. We've got to. And everything I read in near-death experiences confirms that to me. That we don't live here without purpose. It's not only do we have a purpose, but is there ever a moment in our entire lives where we are not here for a purpose, possibly 
many, possibly dozens, hundreds, even thousands of, of purposes or missions. I don't know. But my guess is that a spirit sees it as this lump hole of mission, this thing that needs to be done. And it may include relationships, it may include learning, it may include experiences and so forth. But if you are alive today, you are here for a reason. That's what I'm getting out of this. And if you're like me, you're dying to know what that purpose is. You're dying to know what it is that you need to do, that you're here for. And we should, we absolutely should pray for guidance to receive that. We should pray to be guided to do the things that we came here to do. However, recognize, as we talked about earlier, you may not be granted the specific, you know, this is what you're here to do. This is what you need to focus your life on. You may not be given that because it would taint your choices. It would mean you're choosing them because you know you're supposed to, rather than because you are choosing them for your own choice. This is something, and perhaps one of the major reasons for us to come to this planet and come to this life. As a spirit, we can foresee the future to some level. We can sense, if I do this, whoom, this is all the things that could or would come out of it. We have none of that here. We are cut off from seeing perfectly the consequences of our choices. We have a lot of insight from seeing the past, seeing other people's past, what kinds of things happen when you do those kinds of things, but that's all we've got. Retrospect. That is the only thing that we have wherewith to predict the future. It's pretty good for some things, but when you're looking at big things like, you know, should I go into medical industry or should I become a lawyer? Those are going to lead to very different lives. Perhaps even different people that you would meet along the way, including your family. It may be that you are faced with choices that feel so immobilizing because you don't know which to do. But here's the thing. If you were given it, well, first off, pray and ask for guidance, but also recognize that God may not give it to you for this reason. If he does, it's because you're ready to make that choice and you more or less have. But if he doesn't give it to you, it's probably because if you knew you wouldn't actually make the choice. You would choose it because you're supposed to, because you were told to, whatever, but you wouldn't be doing it out of uh, whatever it is that we're supposed to learn to choose from. You can't see the future. You can't predict in, in detail what will happen by embarking on a particular adventure or on a particular interest or, or, you know, something that you're feeling inclined to do. You can't know what that is going to be like. But you also can't know all the incredible lessons that you can learn from doing it. I don't encourage you to do things, 
you know, that will hurt you to do drugs and, you know, alcohol, things that will, that could lead to addiction and, and, you know, broken families and so forth. It's not that you won't learn from those experiences. You absolutely will, but there's better ways. And honestly, what I see from these kinds of experiences is that that kind of learning is necessary for those who have addictive tendencies and so forth um, so that they can get past them in order to be able to do what they came in this life to do. It's like those are stumbling blocks along the path to fulfilling your mission. You should get past those stumbling blocks if you are in them, absolutely. But don't go seeking stumbling blocks. Seek your mission. Seek the thing that you feel driven emotionally, spiritually, mentally to do. Do those things. And if you fail, that's totally okay. Because that's part of the learning. That's part of the process. You can't know the consequences. There may be lessons that you need to learn in order to fulfill your real mission. Anyway, I know this comes up a lot. It's because I'm still learning too. I would love to know my full mission in life. I've gotten some clarity about my approach to things I do that I think helps me to feel confident that I am at least pursuing the course that I should be in seeking out my mission. I suspect that this podcast is part of that mission. I can never know for sure, but I sense that there's something to that something to it. Because these things, these lessons, these messages have changed my life. They've changed my outlook. They've changed the entire way that I see the world, the entire way that I see other people around me, the entire way I approach decisions, the entire way that I judge people. Because I really don't anymore. (laughs) There's obviously judgments I have to make about who's going to babysit my kids, who I'm going to allow to borrow my car, things that are, you know, kind of no-brainers. You have to think about these things. But I don't look at somebody and say, that that guy's messed up. He's got his life all wrong. Honestly, what I do when I see somebody who's really, really in a rough situation, maybe even brought on by some of their own choices, they're suffering, they're, you know... Uh, on the streets, whatever, I look at them and say, wow, that must be a really valiant, really powerful, strong spirit who was willing to come to a life like that. I look at my cushy life and I'm like, man, I must have been a wimp on the other side. I do struggle with challenges, especially around financial and so forth. I'm very open with you guys about that because that, you know, I feel like I feel like that's part of this whole message is overcoming whatever challenges that we're experiencing, or at least suffering through these challenges, recognizing there is a purpose behind them. There is learning to be done by them. And sometimes I feel like saying, I don't want to learn anymore. I'm done with this. And other days I'm like, okay, there is something still to be learned from this because I'm still experiencing it. There's still something to be learned. Among other things, compassion for those who are in similar 
situations. Anyway, I've rambled long enough. Just recognize you're here for a reason. And it is a very important reason. As many people have described it, you are something of a linchpin to every other experience that every other being in the universe has. You actually have that much of an effect. I don't know how that works. It doesn't all compute in my mind, but that is what is being said in these experiences. And I believe it, even though I don't understand it. So with that, if you would like to contact me, you can do so by emailing chaz at ndepodcast.org or you can email john by emailing john at ndepodcast.org. You can also contribute to the podcast by going to uh, patreon.com slash ndepodcast and becoming an ongoing monthly contributor. You can also purchase my book, Uh, Life in the Spirit World, that helps very much. I do see every purchase that's made. I don't see who makes it, but every time I see one, I just feel a rush of gratitude. And I recognize that not all of you can make these, you know, monetary helps. And don't even feel the slightest bit guilty about that. We're here for you. We're here to bless your life. That is the important thing. This is, if this is, as I suspect, part of my life purpose, then heck with the money. I don't care. I'm here to do what I came here to do. That is far more important to me than anything that you can do. But I will say to those who do have a situation to help in some way, it really does help. It really does touch my life. And thank you again, all of you, for listening. <music>